following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Morning, I'm Dell. I'm part of the leadership team, and it's my great pleasure to be here this morning. Um, so, growing up, uh, my mom always told me that I asked too many questions, and yes, I was that kid. And I haven't changed, but um, today I have a question, and I'll get to it in a moment. Um, But one of the things is that Artisan's mission is to encounter God, embrace people, engage culture in the way of Jesus. And the Bible is just full of stories of encounters with God in strange and ordinary ways like burning bushes, at wells, through angels, on walks, on mountains, and healing like the story we just heard with Naaman. And so you get the picture. And so this Sunday, uh, something that we wanted to do was to extend this thread. Uh, we wanted to add to the overall storyline, the biblical library, if you will, of God's movement um, in the world to hear stories of how some artisan members have and continue to uh, enter, I'm sorry, encounter God in the way of Jesus. And so it's my great pleasure to welcome. Dan Gladding and Angela Gladding, as they answer a question that's always fascinated fascinated me is, how have you and how do you continue to encounter God um, in the way of Jesus? So here they are. Okay, so we're just going for this. You're going to go for it. Um, sure. Do you want to go first? Ladies first. <laughs> I have no idea what Tan's going to say, and I'm super nervous about it. So <laughs> I am uh, going to go first. Um, so I've been really inspired by our um, visiting um, clergy, if I want to say it that way. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about what to say. Um, and so I thought that I would sh- share, um, inspired by Matthew, like three little tiny vignettes, as he said, three little stories of times in my life where I encountered, um, or where I think I encountered God. Um, because, you know, the way my brain works, I'm never quite sure. Um, and, um, you know, Pastor Judy told us her story, and a lot of it has to do with grief. And for me, I, I never want to complain because I don't feel like my life has been hard. And I know a lot of people have struggled way more than I ever have. Um, but the time when I've really felt grief, even um, more than when family members died, is when the image of the person that I thought I was going to be died and um, or the person I thought I was Um, and in those times of grief um, you know I went through all the the psychological stages of grief, denial, anger Um, but I wanted to talk today about the times um, that I bargained with God and what came out of that Um, by the way it's of a stupid thing to do. Just saying. Um, so the first story, 
Well, I mean, wrestling is one thing. There was no... Well, there could have been side bets. I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> uh, so... The first story was when I was 11, we were traveling back from visiting my sister who had recently gotten married and moved to Portland, and we were going to drive from Portland um, back to where we lived, uh, just outside Sacramento, California, in, the, in a day. It's a nine-hour drive. And um, we're from California, so like, you know, nine hours is, okay, that's maybe a skosh long, but ain't no thing, you know what I mean? Um, so... I know that people from New England are like, oh my God, nine hours, you could be in Florida. Um, <laughs> sorry. And uh, so my mom wasn't feeling very well. So my dad ended up driving the whole nine hours himself, which, you know, was interesting. Um, but what we didn't know was that somewhere along the, along the way, my mother's appendix burst. Um, best as I can tell, it was like when we crossed from Oregon into California. Um, and the next morning, um, my mom was severely ill and she got taken, she was taken to the hospital, um, uh, which was way down in Sacramento, like 45 minutes away. Um, and, uh, she was in the hospital. She had surgery, emergency surgery. She was in the hospital for a week and then she was home and she was really bed bound for another week, um, while she had this gigantic wound because she had abscess everywhere, right? Had to close up and my dad wouldn't let me look at it and, you know, it was all, all sorts of, of wrong. But um, the part of me that died that day, that, uh, during this experience was the part that thought my parents were invincible. And I realized that my parents were fragile. And what happened was that I decided that, well, if, if my mom could be gone for two weeks, you know, at the drop of a hat, then I'm the only person that I can really count on. And, um, but I remember, you know, my grandma came and stayed and she kind of smelled funny. I didn't really like her. (laughs) And she took my bed and I had to sleep on the couch. And I remember staring up at this painting, uh, oil painting that my dad had done, which was over our couch. Um, I can... I can be very descriptive because I remember this so well. Um, just staring at it, you know, it was a, it's a picture painting of a sand dune and there's like little faces and hedgehogs and stuff that I always like looked for. Um, it, that's totally irrelevant. Um, and just bargaining because, you know, God to me was something that we did on Sunday when we drove down to church and, you know, I had to ask Jesus into my heart over and over again because nobody explained to me that once was enough. And, but it was very distant. But I was like, okay, he did all these miracles. Maybe he can, you know, miraculously cure my mom. Um, and so I bargained with God and I said, you know, God, if you make sure my mom is okay, then I'll do whatever you want. I'll be nice to my sister. I will become a missionary when I grow up. Um, you know, all those things that an 11-year-old would promise. And um, I'm happy to say that my mom came home and I totally forgot about all those promises that I made. Um, but, in, but retrospect is, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So um, I know God was there and I know he was laughing at me when I was making all these 11-year-old promises. He's like, yeah, sure, sure, you're going to become a missionary. <laughs> sure, Angela. You like people. Right. 
<laughs> um, and, uh, but what I do know is that that, that that time, the fact that my mom was sick and everything did work out meant that four months later, when my father's untreated bipolar disorder led to a nervous breakdown and he was um, involuntarily committed um, for a couple of weeks, um, it meant that I was not completely destroyed by that. I was terrified, um, but I could pay attention to what was happening and learn such things like your thoughts, what you're thinking about the world does not necessarily match up with reality, and that um, there are things that you can do about how you're feeling, better living through chemistry, you know what I mean? Which meant that several years down the road, when my own mental illness started manifesting, I knew that there was something wrong. And I didn't live in it for years and years before I sought treatment. Um, my next story happened about eight years later when I was 19, and um, my mental illness was manifesting big time. And I was grieving a part of myself. I was grieving a part of myself that was perfect. Um, my father is a perfectionist, and he expected nothing else out of his children. And I had gone to college, and things were distracting. I was in charge of myself. And when I started getting depressed, there wasn't, you know, a mom to get me out of bed at the same time every day and make, you know, and make me eat my cereal and, and put me on the, you know, make sure I got dressed and go to school. And so when depression hit when I was 19, um, what happened was I stayed in bed and I failed calculus um, and I almost failed physics um, because math and uh, sucks. And... Um, Sorry, what? Um, and I was in a probably one of the darkest places that I have ever encountered. And there was this, this gaping hole in me. And it was amplified by the fact that I, has, I was failing and I had been defining myself by the grades that I got. Because I was a straight-A student valedictorian. Um, uh, Dan was salutatorian. Um, <laughs> He, um, he, he has a big chip on his shoulder about it, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and all of a sudden, I wasn't that anymore, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know who I was going to be, and what, what I was, who I was without being a you know, uh, straight-A student, or at least, a, or even a student that could get Bs, right? I mean, I was failing. Um, and so, you know, I started self-harming and um, try and keep this PG. So um, there were a lot of self-destructive behaviors that started happening, um, and I, <laughs> I know God was there because I didn't actually experience the severe consequences that I could have. Um, I did some really stupid things, and I'm here. Um, you know, it didn't, I didn't ruin my life. Um, 
but I was grieving and I bargained with God. I said, God, will you just take this hole out of my chest? Will you just take this sort of mind open black pit that I cannot crawl you know, out of on my own and I'll do whatever you want. I will surrender my, you know, surrender my will and I'll become the missionary and help. I'll get an MD so that, um, see, there's a theme, right? Um, I'll get an MD so that I can go and help dying people in Africa and um, so the like. And um, I ended up, uh, two things that changed that. One, I uh, got together with this dude um, who, in his positivity, like, is <laughs> a force of nature. Uh, and I also went, oh, yeah, chemistry, right? And I went to the health clinic, and I got myself on antidepressants. Um, and then I forgot about all the promises that I had made to God. And God said, hey, this is a thing that you've lived through, and you've had to change your medications, and you figured out how to get help. And in retrospect, now that's equipped me to get to help other people. Um, so, finally, I know I'm like way over my amount of time, but the last story I want to help actually happened um, when I have no idea how old I was because math. Um, but it was 2013. So after we had moved to Rochester, um, and I wasn't a missionary, <laughs> and um, we had started coming here to to Artisan and. I really felt different. But, um, you know, I'm a scientist. I had gone through my four and a half years of my PhD and then my seven plus years of a postdoc. And I'm like, I got, I am, this is like, I'm invested, right? I am going to be a scientist, damn it. And, um, but science is not a um, lucrative career. Well, I mean, it's not bad, but, um, you have to self-fund yourself to some extent by getting grant funding. And in the absence of that, you don't have a job. And I was at the point where if I didn't get grant funding, I was going to be out of a job pretty quickly. Um, you know, the university had given me some funds to start my lab, but those were almost gone. I had a matter of months before I ran out of money. And I had all these grant applications I had written and, and put in, and I knew that, you know, they were good. And um, I also knew, again, that it didn't matter that they were good. That there isn't enough money to go around, and not every grant that's good is going to get funded, and you just have to get lucky. You have to find somebody on the committee who's reviewing them that believes in you or believes in your science or, you know, is in a good mood or something, you know, or knows somebody that you know who, you know, stupid stuff like that. Um, but I was failing again, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm a scientist. I have, I, my whole identity is based on the fact that I'm a smart person, and why can't I be smart enough to get this money? And I had been trying for four, uh, five years plus to get this money over and over again, three times a year, grant deadlines. And nothing was working. Um, and I read that, you know, you get critiques. So, uh, you know, every time I read a critique, I'm pissed, I'm angry, I'm in denial. I'm like, oh, they're wrong. They're so wrong. 
And then um, I got to the point where I'm like, this is it. This is the last cycle. I got to, you know, God. Um, I know I didn't end up being a missionary, but if you want me to be a scientist, uh, something's got to give here, bro. And, uh, you know, and then I was like, okay, if I do this, then I'll do whatever you want. And I will be the best scientist that you've made me to be. And I will, you know, encounter God and embrace the way of Jesus in my career, which is a challenge. And um, since I'm still here and employed, um, obviously uh, he came through. Again. Um, He isn't, I mean... I think this time I'm finally prepared to try to hold up my end of the bargain. Um, And so now I'm in the position where he came through. So now I'm in the position where I can help graduate students who suffer disproportionately high uh, uh, rates of mental health uh, problems. Um, Because I've been through that and I've been through graduate school. And I can... Show, God, show scientists who avoid the issue of religion and God at almost all costs. Um, you know, what, what a Christian scientist, <laughs> not those kind of Christian scientists, <laughs> but uh, what a, you know, what scientist who's a Christian looks like and acts like and um, find the third way, you know, rise above the politics and the, you know, and the crap and the backbiting and all that kind of stuff. So, um, again, this is all uh, where I've seen God work in my life, but I want to make sure that you understand that I didn't see it when it was happening. Um, When it's happening, it's just all uh, crisis and survival. Um, But... I think my faith now is so much stronger because I know that I can see where God has been involved in my life. So I think it was probably three weeks ago Del asked if I would share a story and I said, I'd be glad to help. I'm going to have to think about this because I'm terribly unobservant. And some people have been described as having a, a memory like a steel trap, and mine is more like a colander. <laughs> so I'm sure I see, I encounter God in the way of Jesus every day in my life all around me, and it's just... <laughs> but I said, hey, I've got great stories about the guidance of the Holy Spirit and how it got me here. And Dell was gracious enough to say, hey, we're a Trinitarian church, that counts. <laughs> talk about the Holy Spirit, that's fine. So I was all ready to talk about the Holy Spirit uh, those of you who have been here long enough and saw me baptized here have heard the story of how a lot of seemingly innocuous decisions, the first one being stepping out in faith uh, when, I was, when we were both graduating college, deciding to get married, and it was a decision for me who had grown up on the West Coast to marry this woman who I adored and move with her across the country to Birmingham. I thought I might need a passport to go to Birmingham. Um, a whole new culture, a whole new city, a whole new everything, totally away from everything we knew because she needed to start grad school. Um, and I was not then a Christian, but knew that my wife was, and said, well, I started reading the Bible and just trying to find out what this was about, and felt a prompting, just go. 
like Abraham, just go. So I went. And I was all ready to tell the rest of that story because I'm here now and it's important. Um, And in the middle of thinking that out and planning that story, I got one of these, McFly, hello, the Holy Spirit, reminding me of an incident three days before. Did I mention my memory? Um, When I did encounter God uh, in the way of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was just saying, hey, dummy, the least of these, the least of these. Um, And, of course, that's reminding me of Matthew chapter 25. Um... On verse 34, Jesus has been talking about the, the goats and the sheep, which is really about, you know, nations that treat people right and nations that don't, and maybe we could learn something from that. Um, verse 34, then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and we visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So, um, not that I had that whole verse memorized, but the least of these, this is you have done to the least of these, you have done to me, has stuck with me. Uh, And a few nights before this conversation, I'd gathered with a a group of uh, guys from Artisan for coffee at Spot Coffee. And the whole intent was just to get guys together and just kind of um, start to grow some bonds, start to grow some relationships, something that's been missing for a while. And we were literally just enjoying some coffee, light snacks, conversation. Uh, and a man came in who was apparently uh, homeless. He was not very clean. Um, and he started asking if we could help. Did we have any money? Could we help him out? And on instinct, my voice said, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash. Which is typically true. I don't carry cash. Um, and normally when that question comes, I'm on the street and the fact that I don't have cash limits my ability to do anything. And so that instinct came out and that's what it said. And similar mumblings and mutterings came from the rest of the table. And then in the middle of that, one of the staff at Spot Coffee came out and politely but firmly, sir, you cannot bother the customers. You're going to have to leave if you're going to bother the customers. And this guy said, okay, okay, I'm just gonna, I'll just sit down. I won't bother anybody. And that was that. Right up until my friend Elliot stood up and worked through the discomfort of a strange person, a homeless person, someone not like him, asking for help, and the discomfort of, again, this person was very polite, but a representative of empire saying, you're not welcome, setting up a a rule, you can't be here. Elliot worked through both of those things, walked over to the man and started talking to him, and walked up to the counter and bought him something to eat. Because, of course, it didn't matter whether or not I had cash. I used a little piece of plastic in my wallet to buy myself something to eat. Of course, I could have got something for this gentleman to eat. But I didn't. My instinct, my fear, shut me down right there. And Jesus went over and stood in the heart of my friend Elliot and acted that day and helped the least of these. And I turned around and looked and saw him at the counter, and the, and the lady at the register was uncomfortable. And Elliot was just talking to the guy. I don't know what they talked about. It's not important. But he just met this person, human to human, and had a human moment of connection, gave the guy what he needed right then, which was something to eat, 
gave him a moment of human connection, and then the guy sat down and had his food, and we went on with our evening. And since the Holy Spirit knocked on my my head, that story hasn't left me, and I'm reminded of that is encountering God in the way of Jesus. I saw it that day, and this gentleman who needed help saw it that day. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be seeing. That's how we will change our nation into a nation of sheep instead of goats, is one person at a time doing what should be doing, helping the least of these. I was told I needed to keep it under five minutes. So. Thanks, Dan. So I have this rule I never ask people to do something that I myself wouldn't do. So um, my story starts with a breakup, and there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And uh, I was in college. It was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And um, I got the news. (laughs) And so I remember just being in so much pain that... I knew that nothing human could help me. And it was the most searing pain I'd, help, I'd felt in my like 19 years as a, as a human being. And I sat on my bed and I said, I remember this moment because it was the first time I really felt like I needed God. And I just said, I need, I need God. I, I need God. Um, mind you, I, um, I, I would say I grew up agnostic. Um, I knew there possibly was a God. Uh, recently, my mom had started going back to a church, but it was very rule-based. It was like, you cannot... Uh, actually, there was a little... You know, those like bulletins. There was a little line that says, you cannot chew gum in the sanctuary. <laughs> and it just turned me off. And I was like, if this is religion, then I want nothing to do with it. But... I have a mystical heart, and so I was always like, yeah, there might possibly be a God, but I didn't know what God looked like. But then a series of weird things started happening, and one of which was I was walking to class, and this guy, he was like 6'2", probably like 300 pounds, and he approaches me, which, please, if you're a guy, (laughs) just be mindful of how you approach a woman, but he approached me, and he was like, hey, can I ask you a question? And I love talking, so I was like, okay, let's have this conversation. And he said, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, I, you know, I, I'm a good person. I guess I'd go to heaven. I'm not sure what you're asking. He's like, well, you can know for sure. If you want to pray right now, pray the sinner's prayer with me, and you'll know for sure. It's like, okay, I'm game. So we prayed. We were like, it was weird. It was like out in the, in, on this pathway, and people are like walking by in my backpack. This guy's praying for me. But... It's like, okay, so he, he's like, good, now you know that you're part of Jesus's, you know, you're, you're a Christian, and these are the things you need to do, and he hands me a tract with his name and phone number, and that was the last I ever saw of Bruce, at least temporarily. So I walked to class, you know, I forget about this encounter, but I still had the tract in my backpack, and then one of the girls in my class uh, invites, you know, I, I was in a Cal class, and she invited me to lunch and I'm hanging out with her friends, and her friends keep talking about Jesus. You know, like, Jesus said to do this, and Jesus, I think Jesus wants me to do this. And 
So I stop them, and I'm like, guys, you're talking about Jesus like he's real. And they reply, he is. And that was kind of shocking to see, like, 19-year-olds, like, having this conversation about a person named Jesus as though he was, like, sitting right here and they could touch him. Um, But that group of students ended up inviting me to Bible study. And as I got to know them, one of the guys was talking about how he was spending his free time. And his free time was spent, and this was like the early 90s, actually 94, he was visiting AIDS patients in the hospital at 19 years old. And he was like, they are just so hungry for hope. And I remember just being like, I'm 19 and this is not how I spend my free time. Like, it's the last thing I do. But he was really trying to decide, like, how do I live out this call of living a life for Jesus. And he would go and visit them weekly. And he was like, he just pretended that he was a pastor and he would go in there and would sit with these patients um, whose families had completely abandoned them. And I found it really weird, but I also found it fascinating. And so um, one day Carla was like, hey, do you want to go to Bible study? And I was like, what is Bible study? (laughs) But we ended up going to this I would call it strip mall church. Um, uh, and it was a Pentecostal church. So if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church, you know that like people are falling over, speaking in tongues. I mean, it was just complete and total chaos, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, but I remember week after week hearing about Jesus through the Bible and just being... Like, I've never heard of this guy before. I've never heard of Jesus the way he's being presented, of a person who loves so much and wants people and wants God to know that he cares. And so somehow, some way, I've had like a transfiguration moment. There's a, there's a passage of scripture um, where in Luke where it talks about like Jesus' appearance changed. And I remember this moment where Jesus up to that point was just kind of a figure, but I, I saw something. I saw something that I'd never seen, and it changed my perspective on life. And I literally, that moment, remember, like, no, I really am a Christian. I really do believe in Jesus. And that was sort of like the encounters of seeing people live for him, want, wonder, like, how to continue to show love. This pastor who... And again, it was, it was actually one thing that, one sermon I remember where it was still legal to discriminate against gay people. And he said, you know, if a gay man, if, actually he used the word homosexual because I remember, but he said if a homosexual uh, were to come here, I would, I would totally welcome them. And this was really shocking for me because most Christians that I knew were extremely judgmental. But here this man and this whole congregation was totally about loving God. And so I, the takeaway for me was that, you know, that God cared about people who had problems. God cared about people who were on the fringes. God cared about people who were desperate and in pain. And I could get behind that. And so that's kind of my story of um, encountering Jesus, encountering God in the way of Jesus. So we (laughs) 
So this is the time for communion, and I hope that this represents an opportunity for anyone to encounter Jesus. And so if you would, this is an open table. Uh, we don't, it's not for members only, um, but if Jesus were to invite you to come and have a meal um, and you say yes, then you are welcome here. Uh, we usually take the bread and we dip it um, in the wine or the juice. There's a gluten-free option. Uh, there's going to be a member of the prayer team in the back um, if, if you want to pray with someone. Um, and the band will come up and play music. But uh, communion, uh, I'm going to open up our communion uh, by saying that this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is the table, I'm oh, sorry, it's to, it's to be made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come not because it is I who invite you, it is our Lord. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Come for communion. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.